Hey everyone, welcome back to Love Means Nothing. I am your host, Chris Hasek Watt. I just want to thank everyone who has subscribed, listened for all the kind reviews, the kind comments. I want to express my gratitude to you all. Thank you so much. We have an exciting episode uh, today. Pavi G, a fan favorite, is back on the show. He's a tennis social media influencer. Um, follow him on Twitter, Pavi G. He's got about 20,000 followers, all very engaged. He kind of goes against the typical narrative. Some people would consider him controversial. I don't. I think he's got a lot of common sense, rational views on things, and he says it how it is. Anyway, had another great conversation with him, so let's jump into it. Okay, so I'm here, back with Pavi G. Excited to have him on the pod again. Last time you were on, uh, a few feathers were ruffled. Um, one person in particular was quite triggered. Did you receive any uh, hate mail like I did after that uh, the last episode, Pavi? <laughs> I didn't know, and I know I know what you're referring to. I know when certain Renault subs wasn't too thrilled with some of the stuff that was said. Um, I probably did, to, to be honest, Chris. I, I get that much uh, hate mail. I just ignore it and uh, I, I just uh, brush it away now. But uh, I can't remember anything specific, to be honest. Well, I do see the comments on a lot on your Twitter feed, so there is a lot of a little lot of hate being directed towards you. But uh, you take it like a champ, so. That's good. Let's move on to tennis. Um, let's let's go back. Um, it's about three weeks now to the Australian Open. Uh, Djokovic, you're a Djokovic guy. You know, for most people's standards, he had a good tournament, but obviously not for Djokovic. Uh, it seemed like the wrist was bothering him early on, and then it seemed like he had some sort of an illness going into the Australian Australian Open. Obviously, got to the semifinals, but from his standards, had a terrible match against Sinner. Can you give us the lowdown on, on what was going on with Joker in Australia? Yeah, I will do. I mean, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me back uh, on your pod as well. I you know, really enjoyed our, our chat last time and I follow all of your, your pods that you've done since. And I, I think it's a really good um, platform that you've got. I think you take a slightly different view to other tennis podcasts and talk about things that other tennis podcasts may think are off limits. So, you know, um, huge credit to you and, and, and great to be back on uh, with, chatting with you again. So, uh, but yeah. Um, Thank you. Jocker, I mean, yeah. Um, you know, I was, I mean, I said right at the start of the Australian Open that I didn't think that he would win the Australian Open this year. And, and I got, um, I did get some messages from a few Djokovic fans saying that's, you know, a bit negative and what's your reasoning behind that? And, um, there was a number of factors. Uh, I mean, if we go, if you let me go back, right back to the, the start of when, um, back to the end of the season. So, you know, Djokovic had a very, very hectic end of season. So um, he decided to play Paris Masters back in November, which um, at the time we weren't sure if he was or he wasn't because he'd already had a very, very successful um, season. He'd obviously won three slams. He hadn't had much rest. Um, he'd won the Cincy Masters with the US Open, so there wasn't he wasn't sure that he was going to take a full break and take the rest of the year off because he decided to skip the, the Far East Tour. But he wanted to come back. I think he wanted to confirm his year-end number one, which at the time was still a little bit in doubt and Alcaraz could still potentially have pipped him to that title. So he wanted to come back. He came, um, he won, uh, he won the Paris Masters, so it was a successful tournament. 
Um, soon after that is the World Tour Finals, uh, and he was involved in some um, great battles. Uh, obviously, uh, two great matches with Sinner. Um, you know, the second one, the first Sinner match in particular, was, was a brutal one, which Sinner won in three sets. Uh, but um, Djokovic ultimately prevailed. He won comfortably in the, in the final. Uh, and now we're, we're coming towards Christmas time. So, you know, Djokovic has already had quite a long um, period of playing tennis um, in, in a few matches. He then gets the call up for the Davis Cup for Serbia. And Serbia have got qualified for the finals. Uh, and this is something that Djokovic is never going to say no to because he is Serbia through and through. And, you know, if they come and ask for his help, he's never going to say no. Now, what happened in the Davis Cups is that, is that he was involved in some brutal matches and Serbia ended up getting through um, to the semi-final. Um, so Djokovic is playing doubles, he's playing singles. Um, he then obviously has that famous, now famous match really against Sinner where he, he missed three match points, a brutal three-set match. Um, he then lost that match uh, and Sinner obviously went on and, and went on to win the title for Australia, they beat they beat uh, Australia in the final, which I think Serbia yeah. probably would have done had Djokovic converted one of those three match points. So I think Djokovic felt that mentally, but also physically. So we're now, you know, at the end of November, he still hasn't had his rest, and he's always said that you know the older he gets, he likes to have a couple of months breaks where you know he doesn't play tennis. Um, so he has a few weeks. You know, he goes back. He's he's kind of has a, has a few weeks of rest. Enjoy. Um, some, you know, the Christmas break uh, at home. He then has agreed to play this um, exhibition with uh, Carlos Alcaraz in Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, a lot of people say, oh, he's doing this for money. I, I don't, you know, obviously Djokovic has got more money than any of the <laughs> tennis player. God, I don't think he did more it for money, money than God. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but I think he did that because he genuinely um, felt an affinity towards the, the Middle East, the Saudi Arabian people, and he wanted to showcase tennis and, and be a part of that and he was invited and obviously they had the match with Alcaraz um, but we're now you know at the end of December he still hasn't had his rest and now you know he's being called up for Serbia again but this time in the United Cup which is you know a mixed format it's a different format so so Djokovic normally going into Australian Open he's normally got five four five six weeks of rest and you know recovery but now he's been he's been in Spain in the Davis Cup he went from Paris he went to Torino went to Spain he went to the Middle East. He's now in Australia. He's now in Perth, a different part of Australia. So all of this time, this is catching up with him. And, and you know, what happened at the United Cup was he picked up a wrist injury, um, which, you know, later transpired wasn't as serious as we had thought. But what he picked up in and out through all of his childhood was he picked up a viral infection. Um, and he had that on day mm -hmm. one. So, you know, in his round one match, he faced uh, an 18-year-old uh, qualifier from, from Croatia. And Djokovic struggled. Yeah. You know, he could have gone out in the first round and he was sweating yeah. and he was coughing and he was throat and everyone's like... And I, and I looked at that match and I thought, he, he's struggling because he's, he's not had the same preparation as he does in the other slams where, you know, with Wimbledon, he doesn't even have a, a grass court preparation. He just takes time to rest and train. He didn't have that. And then he kind of, you know, throughout the tournament, you just looked at Djokovic and thought, he's not his fluent self. And and people were uh -huh. like, we can't put a finger on it. Is it a case he's getting old? And I just thought it was his preparation. And because he'd been traveling so much, his body was then struggling to recover from this virus because he's not had much rest in, in that last three or four months. So I think, you know, leading into that, um, you know, it was all going bad. But then it all changed. And, and Djokovic absolutely 
thrashed uh, Manorino. Uh, I think, you know, he double bagged with him. I was like, Djokovic is back. Um, he then had a really tough match against Fritz, which he came through in four. Uh, but people forget that he's normally beating Fritz comfortably and straight. So he still wasn't yeah. at that level that he was. And then, you yeah. know, the first set against Sinner, he was, Djokovic was, you know, people can say, oh, we use excuses. But even Sinner himself said that he saw that that wasn't Djokovic. You know, and that wasn't no, Sinner sure. outplaying him. You know, if Djokovic no. got outplayed, I would be worried. But he was hitting forehands. Like, I, I would make those forehands. And I'm a, an amateur player. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah. And, and you know, I think Sinner was shocked that he went, he, he was 6-1, 6-2 in an hour, which is unthinkable. Yeah. And, and, you know, and he how couldn't find Djokovic the energy. Was, couldn't find the energy, but he couldn't find the focus. You know, he normally he's focus. very animated he with the, the crowd. He just looked flat. Um, he didn't yeah. let one come on, uh, or you know, he just looked like he, he was totally energyless. So, so yeah, you know, ultimately, look at it from where I've kind of taken it from where Djokovic started, you know, from that period where he played the Paris Masters. He then had three or four months where he just didn't get much rest. By the time it came to Australia, I think he was done, uh, physically and mentally. Um, but I'm not going to take anything away from Sinner. Sinner, you know, has proved that he is, um, the clear standout challenger to Djokovic, I think, in the last six months. I think he's yeah. passed um, Alcaraz almost. And uh, I still think Alcaraz has got more shots than Sinner, but I think Sinner's got that consistency. But he's also got um, that mentality. I think he's mentally very, very strong and he doesn't get um, hung up over the occasion. And, and when you're an elite level, uh, tennis is more mental than um, skill. And I think Sinner is right. mentally strong, which is why he becomes... Uh, a genuine contender for Djokovic going forward. I want, and I want to get into, I want to get into center a lot more, but just on the, on the Djokovic, on the Djokovic thing. So what I found most surprising and, and thanks for the recap. Um, and I followed it the whole way through. And what I found most surprising is that Djokovic has said numerous times in the past that the slams are what, why he's still playing. You know what I mean? He wants to, yeah, to rack up as many slams as possible. And Djokovic is usually so purposeful in everything he does. He's so detailed in his preparation. And it did seem like a lot to me. You know what I mean? Playing Davis, then playing United, and then going in tired, you know, a little bit hurt. Illness you can't do anything about. Although, right before the Australian Open, kind of the media day where all the fans come in and you start messing around with people, you know, he's doing the splits. He's playing with, pots and pans he's hugging you know fans which is great you know what i mean like but at the same time you're putting yourself at risk to contract some sort of illness yeah. get hurt etc i was a little surprised how kind of loosey-goosey he was about it all when he's usually so focused you know going into a slam did you find um, that odd at all did you find that were you were you surprised i was a little bit surprised and you know I, I sometimes get a bit of criticism on twitter that i don't ever criticize novak and and this is one element right. when i when i saw him in the australian open i thought that his preparation wasn't as good as it has been for other slams and you're absolutely right um i think i don't think he walked into it too overconfident i think he said at the start that mm -hmm. his biggest challenge was himself so i think he knew that he wasn't firing on all cylinders and i think you know, being in Australia, he, you know, after what he went through in 2022, and you're absolutely right, but what Djokovic did when he came back this year, he was treated almost like a hero. And I think 
memories of 2022 came flooding back to him because he was he was playing exhibitions in front of packed out Rod Laver stadiums. You know, he had cricketers that were coming. Steve Smith, he was having a hit with him. He had a podcast with Nick Kyrgios. He had an exhibition mm-hmm. with Kyrgios. He was, you know, like you said, he was he was very much in his mode. And I, I personally would have liked him to have gone to training, gone to his hotel, do his Pilates, do his yoga, do his meditation, do everything that I know. Because I've seen Djokovic in and around slams. And he is um, channel vision. You know, you can't really, he, he's not really the same joker because he's on, he's on a mission. You know, and, and right. people will like, say, oh, it's Djokovic. And it's like, yeah, but it's, he's in a slam. And, you know, he's in his own zone. And, and I, don't, I didn't quite see him in that zone. And I think the other thing right. that didn't help him this time was that he didn't have any of his family travel with him this year. Um, mm. And I think the reason for that is that with his kids, uh, they're a little bit older. So taking them out of school for two, three, four weeks is a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, but mm. also with Yelena's work commitments. Now, you know, she's very, very busy herself with her foundation and, and she's got a media outlet. So she, it's very, very tough for her to um, to take two, three weeks off and fly over to Australia. Um, and his parents didn't travel this year either. I'm not sure the reasons for that, but but you probably know, and I know, you know, if you're his, ill- His, par- his parents probably didn't, want, his parents probably didn't want to, sorry to interrupt, his parents probably didn't want to step foot in Australia again. They probably made a vow to themselves after how how that country treated them that they're just sticking to their guns and they say we're never going back yeah, to that country again. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And and you know I said something similar at the time in twenty twenty two. But um, mm. but the, the point that I was trying to make is that if you're ill and and you're not feeling great, the the, the only the, the best tonic sometimes is is spending time with family because they know you know what to make you you know feel better and you just want to you know, have mm-hmm. some cuddles with your family and just try and feel better. And he, he didn't have that. So, you know, a few of his interviews, you could see that he was pining to be back with his family. And that was the really interesting thing for me. I think around quarter final time, he was actually speaking that he was missing his family in the quarter final stage before his match with Fritz. And I thought, hmm, I've never seen that. You know, I can see that at the end of the tournament, but in an interview that he did in Australia, he was saying that he really misses his family more than ever. And I think that kind of helped him, um, well, it didn't help him to give that extra little bit of a boost that when you're down and, you know, down and, and out and you're not feeling well, sometimes you look at your family, you get that boost, you get that adrenaline. He, he didn't have that this year. And I think that, that cost him as well. Right, right. Okay. Okay, let's move on to Sinner. Um, you mentioned it before, uh, obviously winning the Australian Open, huge for him. It does feel like he is now the golden child of tennis the Alcaraz era has kind of moved on as quickly as it started (laughs) I know you've referred to him before as kind of the establishment favorite as well can you just give me some thoughts on 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 why why Sinner has now risen to the top so fast and Alcaraz has kind of been forgotten about and maybe we can talk about Nike the deal and a few other a few other uh, points around that yeah Absolutely. I mean, again, if we take it a little bit back, when Alcaraz was, you know, won his first slam, there was a lot of excitement. He obviously he'd beaten Djokovic. Um, there was this new young kid, obviously Nike's number one um, sponsor now, really, with Nadal, you know, not really playing. Um, he had this exciting band of tennis, and it was really when he when he beat Djokovic at Wimbledon. And Djokovic, a bit like Australian Open, Wimbledon is is known to be his turf. He'd won the last four years. 
when Alcaraz beat him in June, July last year, that was when the whole media went completely nuts about it. And they were saying, well, this guy is going to win 25, 30 slams. Um, everyone was saying he could be the future GOAT, which is, you know, I, 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 you know a lot of my messages were, were mocking all of this. Because it was so I agree. Early. I and I agree. Yeah. I was mocking. I was mocking it too. On the other hand, Djokovic had a lot of good, a lot of a lot of kind things to say about his game as well. So you know, what I mean, like there was there was something there when Djokovic was saying, "Hey, he's got actually the best aspects of of Fed, Nadal, of Murray, etc." Like you know, he was kind of also you know pushing up his game as well for the media to think that. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, yeah. the the hype was merited. But the level yeah. that they took it to was just extreme. Agreed. And, you know, we had then Nike saying it is now the Alcaraz era, which they actually tweeted. So soon after mm-hmm. we won the Wimbledon tweet, they tweeted that this is now the Alcaraz era. The whole newspaper was saying Djokovic is now done. Alcaraz has got his number. Um, you know, he, his time is over. It's now the Alcaraz time. And he was a golden boy. He was winning all the um, the awards. He was winning all the popularity. He's so popular. And, and you know, every, every bit of promotion was about Alcaraz. Now, what happened soon afterwards that Djokovic and Alcaraz then met in the Cincinnati final. And this was mm-hmm. huge. And I said at the time, because Djokovic was uh, 7-5 and 4-2 down to Alcaraz in that final. And everyone Best match was of the saying, year. That's it. Best match of the yeah. year by far. Best singles match. Yeah. When I say singles, best best of three match I've ever seen. Um, yeah. you know, I've seen some oh, better agreed. slam matches, but you know, in, in terms of best of the three. The match was done. Yeah. And, and, you know, everyone, I was on Twitter at the time, everyone was like laughing. The, 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 the Djokovic haters were laughing and saying, he's definitely, you know, he can't say he was bad here now. He's been beaten fair and square at Cincy. Djokovic somehow turned that match around. And it's the first time that we'd seen um, Alcaraz lose his temper. So, you know, we saw him um, chuck his racket and bang his hand. He needed stitches after the second set uh, because he smacked his hand uh, against uh, the wall and, and uh, uh, there was a medical timeout. So he was properly rattled. Now, Djokovic, mm. when he finally won that match, knew all the stakes about all the media, all the writing off. It's the first time that he took off his shirt since I think he was 23, 24, when he did it in Australia. Say, over that. 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think he knew how important it meant, not just for him, but for the people that had written him off. And he knew that yeah. if he could beat Alcaraz then, is then going to give him a huge advantage psychologically and, going into the US Open and, and, and further above. And what's happened and he said, and, and, is... and he said so much too. You know, after when yeah, he said, oh, he, he you, said you, yeah, you guys now think I gave him extra motivation to work even harder him... to prove himself again. Absolutely. And, and what happened yeah. since... Alcaraz has not made a final since that Cincinnati mm. final. He's not made a final since. It broke and him. If you look, it, it, it's kind of broken him mentally. Yeah, I, I, I think it definitely is. He's still young. Um, and then all we heard in the next few months was Alcaraz saying, I'm focusing on Djokovic, I'm focusing on it. And it's almost like he took his eye off the ball and thinking, mm. hey, look, you've got Sinner, you've got Medvedev, you've got other so many good players. And it's almost like he became so obsessed to try and get that pinnacle back and it gets to you. You know, I think it gets to Federer. If someone's telling you that you are going to be the GOAT and you're the best thing since sliced bread, I think, you know, he's only, what, 20, 21? It gets to you. And you think, actually, yeah, yeah, 20. You think, you know, yeah, maybe I am. And I think he probably got a little bit ahead of himself. I think all of the pressure, the hype, it started getting on him. And all of a sudden, there was a switch. And that switch happened around the World Tour Finals. 
because Alcaraz turned up. He'd, had, he'd, he'd lost in the uh, the US Open. He was expected to go to the final. He lost uh, to Medvedev in the, in the semis. Um, he then lost early, I think, first round uh, in uh, to Safalin in, in Paris, which was yep. a good shot. Correct. And then he went into the World Tour finals lacking confidence, and he, he didn't qualify. He, he lost, you know, Djokovic beat him comfortably. And all of a sudden, the, the press about, you know, being the Alcaraz era, it went quiet, and it was almost like they were panicking and thinking, well, you know, this is our guy. He's, our, you know, he's who we're putting all our money in, our promotion in. You know, what are we going to do now? And at the same time, Sinner is then starting to rise. Um, he's now beating Djokovic. And then, and then all of a sudden, it was quite interesting. All nearly all of the ATP awards then went to Sinner, and even I at the time was like, "Oh, what happened to Alcaraz?" It was literally just a month ago. It, was, it just shows how mm-hmm. quickly they are ready to switch that um, mm-hmm. that switch and and turn their allegiances if they don't think that that you're gonna you're gonna be this one. And since then, um, it's been all Sinner. Uh, you know, Sinner's now going to be the number one, and he's better than Djokovic and. You know, and, and you know, credit where credit's due. Like with Alcaraz, they both they both deserve it. It's just the level of hype, and I think this is where Nike comes into play. And this is when I talk about the establishment because if you look at Sinner's um, sponsors, they're almost identical to the ones that that Federer had. So he's sponsored by yeah. Rolex, he's sponsored by Ferrari, he's sponsored by, um, you know, he's sponsored by every every single big global organization. And with yeah. that becomes, you get your protection because they've got links to the media. They've got links to organizations. This is where big businesses make their money. This is where they kind of really push their guys. And this is why um, I always feel for Djokovic because he doesn't have that night behind him. He doesn't have that Rolex behind him. And all we're seeing now is a big PR um, push now where Sinner is kind of everywhere. <clears throat> and I, I'll even go as further to say that I will I will expect Sinner to get preferable draws. I would expect Sinner to get preferable surfaces. And people will say, oh, he's talking conspiracy again. But we know that it, for a fact it's happened. We, we know that the Paris Masters uh, tournament surface was changed for Federer's um, preference uh, a few years ago because the, the tournament director confirmed that in an interview. Um, and if you go back to the Australian Open, and Djokovic alluded to this as well, it's the first time ever that a men's singles semi-final hasn't been played in the evening. And they know that Djokovic mm. loves playing in the evening. He said that, and he's prepared for that. And yeah. Djokovic said it was strange for him <clears throat> for, for there not to be a match to be played in the evening. The other thing, just going back onto the Australian Open, was that the balls were changed. So the balls were much slower. The surface was much slower. It was... Um, you know, a lot of the matches were going four or five hours because the the, the ball wasn't going through. So that is going to mm-hmm. help the younger players because they were able to, you know, and, and the big swings. The, the people with the big shots. Yeah, it's not going to help them, you know, with, with keeping the point short. Yeah. So there was a there was a few little things, and I, and I think it's part of the the reason that they don't want the same person to keep winning the tournament. They think that's a bad look. But I do think that what we're going to see going forward is we're going to see. Um, Sinner get a lot of protection, um, and and there, he's going to be now asked, where, where do you want to play? What schedule do you want? You know, and and some people say, well, the top players deserve that they do, but there's certain things that, um, such as draws and surface changing, um, that that isn't. I don't think that's fair. I don't think right. that's a level playing field, and I think that's what we're going to see with with Sinner now. But you know, it, it is what it yep. is. And I want to reiterate or re-emphasize what you were saying as well that. 
this isn't taking away anything from Sinner or Alcaraz. They're both phenomenal right. players. It's almost like the higher powers make these decisions and decisions and choose who their guy is. Mm. And it's clear to yeah. me that they've decided that Alcaraz is the next Nadal and Sinner is the next Federer. And they're moving them down the exact same paths that yes. both of these, yeah. you know, previous superstars went down when it comes to the sponsors, when it comes to all these other factors that you mentioned. And just regarding the awards, you know, again, taking nothing away from Sinner, but he was awarded like fan favorite for 2023. And anybody that's ever been to a tennis, a pro tennis tournament where Djokovic is there, Sinner is there, and Elkaraz is there, it goes, when it comes to fans watching these players, just trying to get a glimpse of them on the practice courts, et cetera, it goes Djokovic number one by a large amount. Yeah, because he's an because he's the goat and the legend, and people just want to see him. They want you know him to sign their babies, etc. Like I would want. Then Alcaraz is number two, and then Sinner is number three. But for some reason, he still got you know fan favorite. And you you kind of question like any rational person says, hey, this isn't taking anything away from Sinner. Yes, fans do love him, but at this point, particularly this is before he even won the Australian Open. There's no way you could argue that he's a fan favorite, even when you compare it to those other two players. So no. what's going what's going on there? Like, that does the a ATP then do the executives, you know, sit in a room and decide? Okay, who's our? They probably do. Who's our guy? Who are we pushing? How do these awards affect us? You know, as far as viewership, you know, um, um, creating new fans to the game, etc. And then that's how these decisions are based. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there was there, it wasn't just a fan favorite. So he won the shot of the year. So Djokovic won three Grand Slams. They gave the shot of the year to Sinner. They gave right. the coach of the year to oh, of Sinner's coach. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he almost washed Darren out. And Cahill. the other award, Darren Cahill, yeah. And, and you know, Djokovic and, you know, had to remodel his game. You know, and, and you might remember at the time he put on Instagram, he was like saying, what more do we need to do in a jokey way to Gorak? And he said, you know, we've won three slams at 36. He had to completely remodel his game. That took a lot of coaching. You know, that wasn't just it's Djokovic. A joke. It was it's, the whole it's team. It's a joke. Team effort. It's a joke. And, yeah. you know, Sinha, this last year, didn't even win a slam. He hadn't even won a slam. I think he'd won two Masters. He'd done pretty poorly in slams, but they still gave the coach of the year to Cahill, even though he had actually performed worse in slams in 23 than he had in 22. So you can't say it was a massive improvement. It was actually he actually performed worse in 23 than he did in 22. So that was the irony. And the other ironic thing, uh, we're just talking about, you know, Sinner and Alcaraz, is that the sportsmanship of the year, which we all know for 18 years went to either Roger Federer or Carlos Alcaraz, this, or um, Nadal, sorry, went to Carlos Alcaraz. Now, the, the hypocrisy there is, and we're going to bring Rene Subs into this again, because last <laughs> uh -oh. year... when could be trouble. When, <laughs> Last year, before <laughs> before she blocked me, and when we we were, we used to kind of talk, it wasn't always amicable. She told me at the time that Djokovic could never win the sportsmanship of the year because he throws rackets and he gets angry and caught. Now, if we go back to Cincinnati, I've got footage of Alcaraz flinging his racket and smashing his hand uh, on on a box and cutting it, and and you know that video is pretty much um, disappeared. Is you can't see it now. It's very very it's hidden. So. Um, hmm. So the hypocrisy there is, it's like, oh, but some of the players can do it and they get sportsmanship, but Djokovic can do it and it's like, oh, but he doesn't get it because he throws rackets, but other people can. So 
So that's the hypocrisy, and and, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned at the point that it's nothing to do with Sinner and Alcaraz. You know, I'm I've openly admitted I don't like um, uh, Federer and Nadal for for a variety of reasons, but I have absolutely no issues with Sinner and Alcaraz. I actually quite like Alcaraz. I think he's got a great personality. I love his um, watching his matches because he's got such an array of shots. Sinner, I find a little bit boring. I'm not going to be, um, you know, I always be honest, but I find him a nice guy. He seems respectable. He speaks yeah. well. Um, he seems humble. Um, I think he's got a very, very solid game. Um, I think he's lacking a little bit in personality, but again, he's still he's 22. He could maybe develop and, and, and get a bit more personality. I'm sure Nike will be paying him loads to do loads of PR training going forward. They, are, they already um, are. But, um, yeah, yeah. But I've got absolutely no issues with them. Absolutely no issues with them. Or people say, oh, you know, I don't like people because they beat Djokovic. You know, that, that's rubbish. I, you, know, I, you know, I respect uh, both of those players. I hate the hype. And that's what kind of gets me because the whole reason that I started sporting Djokovic was well, 20 odd years ago is when I saw all the hype for Fedor, uh, for Federer and Nadal. And I, yeah. and I was just, you know, I, I just didn't like it. And I can see what you, what you mentioned is exactly the same cycle is now happening yeah. with Alcaraz and Sinner. And, and Djokovic is still there, which is, uh, you know, which is probably irking them more than anything. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I totally agree with you that and people get offended for some reason about it. But Sinner is a little bit boring right now. Like his his I wouldn't say his game is boring. It, it used to be a little bit because it was very one dimensional. But he's begin he's 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 now learned how to become more of a, a dynamic player. You know what I mean, so there are different dimensions to his game. But when it comes to his personality, he was very kind of cold. He didn't say much and he still doesn't. But it is improving and that will come with time. Once you get more um, experience talking to the media, et cetera, but maybe he's also a bit more controllable as well. You know, I mean, he seems pretty laid back. You know, the question is, do, you know, the players serve the sponsors or do the players um, or do the sponsors serve the players or do the players serve the sponsors? And clearly, you know, if you're a control, kind of a controllable, controllable laid back person, you know, the sponsors will have a lot of say as far as how, you know, your player will, you know, uh, act in interviews, kind of will go up, move, sorry, I'm trying to say, will actually kind of like almost do what you ask them to do. Um, yeah. The other thing about um, about this whole thing is, and the hypocrisy around this, the gamemanship award, who really even gives a shit? Because personally, yeah. I'm sick of seeing these players get fined, get a warning, et cetera, when they throw their racket. I like it as a fan. You want to see players get angry. You want to see some emotion. They're trying to like tame these players down where they're, they're completely emotionless and that doesn't do any good for growing the game. So whether whoever wins sportsmanship award for me, I don't even give a shit. I agree with you. There is hypocrisy there, but they should just take almost that award out and not whether you throw a racket yeah. or not, whatever. It's really about like, doing good off the court it's about how you treat people you know treat the media treat the fans like if someone yells on court but, you know what i mean like who cares like andy murray yeah. apparently is one of the nicest guys off of the court and on the court he's a complete asshole but that's just the way he goes about about his things on court and i have no problem with that in fact i kind of like it yeah and I'll tell you the reason why there is a sportsmanship award it is that it's what i call an establishment award because they don't want their players just to be a good player. They want them to be a good person. So what you'll see going forward now is a lot of people will say, Sinner, 
it's not just about tennis for me. It's about being a humanitarian. It's about being um, a philanthropist. It's about being a good person. That's what makes me tick. Now, winning those awards, that fits that narrative, which is why Federer won that award for 13 years consecutively, because Nike mm. wanted him not just to be a good player. They wanted him to be a role model. And winning these awards helps push that narrative. It helps sell. It helps get more promotion for Nike. It makes more, you know, it sells more Federer merchandise. And when they're paying multi, multi-millionaires for more million dollars for these contracts, they want to make sure that they can uh, prioritize and, and fully maximize their return. And, and I think even Sinner is on a like 200 million pound deal for Nike is one of the most expensive signed um, uh, athletes that they've got now. And, and, and mm-hmm. in return for that, it's not just good enough being a good player. You've got to be a good person because this is what Nike right. do. Nike awake as, uh, you know, as fuck really. And yeah. this is what yeah. they, they, they push. And, and, and these awards. Nike should really just focus on what they do best, which is making shoes, making clothes, designs, because, you know, if you look at their last quarterly earnings, you know what I mean? Their sales, their profit is falling off a cliff because they're just not doing anything new. And they think controlling these players, putting, getting these like players behind them is going to change things. Well, that's part of it. But overall, as, as far as like their tennis goes, the quality, their designs, et cetera, over the last dec- decade or like last probably f- at least five years, you know what I mean? Have really gone downhill. I used to only wear Nike. Yeah. Now I hardly wear same. Nike. Um, I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how they're just running their business seems to be a little bit, they, they need new leadership for sure. Uh, I kind of put them in the same basket as a Disney right now. Um, let's move on, though. Let's talk about Rafa definitely, a little definitely. bit. You know, I have to hmm. say that I'm still, I'm still kind of a Rafa fan. I know you're not, so maybe I'll take, I'll, I'll have a little bit of a different take than you will. Um, you said on Twitter uh, several times that you don't think that Rafa ever planned on playing the Australian Open. Uh, I want to dig into that a little bit more, and then. You know, I think it was in the second week of Australian Open, there was an announcement of him becoming the ambassador of tennis to Saudi. Um, what are your thoughts there? So, yeah, I mean, I said at the time, and I, again, I got some criticism for this. I said, I don't think that Nadal is going to play the Australian Open. Now, the reasoning for that is that Nadal had been out of the game for almost a year. Um, you know, with a variety of injuries and, and you know, we don't, obviously we're not going to go into that, but he was out for a year. And, and obviously we all know that he's missed or he tends to be injured uh, uh, during the hard court season in, in his history. And, and he, he said that playing on clay is, is better for his legs and his body and stuff. So um, first and foremost, when he announced that he was going to return at the Australian Open when he's not even played for a year, that, that rang uh, alarm bells for me. I was like, OK, well, that's a little bit strange. Now, secondly, there was there was these comebacks videos almost daily where where when Nadal for me it looked like it was in a hostage video was was putting out these videos saying that you know he, he's coming back at the Australian Open and you know I think he released four daily videos over four days where he was documenting his comeback and then you know with the comeback we then see the training videos we see him in the gym we see him it seemed a little bit over the top because he at this stage. He hadn't even played a competitive game and he was kind of pushing his combat. for a person who's been injured for a year and got a history of injuries, I, for me, I thought this is Nike who are pushing him because they've missed a year of sales of Nadal. They've missed him. 
you know, they're paying a huge mm-hmm. amount of money for Nadal. They've not had any promotion. So they've, they've sat him yeah. down and said, well, we don't know if you're going to play or not. Because there was a time where, where, where Chris Tiley, uh, Craig Tiley, sorry, who's the tournament director of Australia, he announced it before everyone. It's like, Jock, um, Nadal has confirmed his Australian Open. And Nadal quickly went on on uh, on Twitter and said, hang on a minute, you know, I, I hope to be there. I'm not, you know, I haven't confirmed yeah. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on it. Yeah. And this was just two weeks after Nadal was saying he could barely walk. And then, yeah. you know, you've got Craig Tiley saying, yeah, he's fully confirmed. So yeah, they're, thinking, they're thinking ticket sales, obviously. You know, they want to yeah. get that promotion going. But the amount of hype that, that Nadal had leading into Australia, I just didn't feel right. I thought this is leading to, this is going to lead to a fall because you, you, you kind of, there was all these videos with, with, you know, gladiator music saying Nadal is back. He's going to be back at Australian Open. Get your tickets. And I, I just found it to be manufactured. And, and you know, when right. he came back, and he played, um, you know, and I, and I said to everyone, I said, he, he'll get, even though he, he was playing with a protected ranking, it means you're not seeded. So I thought he was going to get yeah. a relatively straightforward draw. He ended up getting a qualifier. That qualifier was Dominic Team, who we all know in the yeah. last couple of years, isn't the Dominic Team that we know. And yeah. Nadal kind of came through that match and, and looked okay. Um, he then should have beaten um, uh, Justin Thompson uh, of Australia in the next round. I think he had a couple of match points, maybe in the second set, but he was certainly ahead and, and he was in control. Mm-hmm. He ended up losing that match. Now, just before the end of the match, he called a, an injury timeout. Um, it wasn't a, an obvious injury, but you know he called it an injury timeout. He carried on playing two, three games. and I was looking at him very, very closely, and it didn't look like he had any issues at all. He ended up losing that match, and then shortly afterwards, he announced that he... Um, had a, an injury problem, he was going to get it checked and, and he had this micro strain and, and he was unfortunately going to pull out of the Australian Open. Now, I've heard that in Australia that Nadal was paid and he had a, a huge entourage with him. So his his whole family were there, his friends were there, his whole coaching staff were there and I understand that that was all paid for probably by Nike or by Australian Open or whoever it was, Australian Open were bringing in all sorts of this year's Australian Open and then just hiking the prices up for the fans. So they probably bought, bought all of his entourage open. He had a great mm-hmm. holiday. You know, they, they, they were going to holiday places and safaris. But I genuinely don't think that he had any intention of ever playing the Australian Open. Um, I think, hmm. um, you know, for me, if I was his advisor or if I was working as a as physio, I would say to him, are you mad playing a hardcore Grand Slam? with one match hardcore after you've been injured for a year to go into the most physically and mentally grueling um, event with just one one match under your belt, you'll be crazy. Uh, and that's what right. I think happened behind doors. What happens, obviously, in front of cameras is, 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 you know, as they want to present it. But I just think it just seems to me, it was very, I would have been very, very shocked if he actually stepped foot on the Australian Open and, and played a match because he didn't right. have... Uh, any hardcore practice, you know, a couple of months before he said he was barely able to walk. Um, you know, he mm-hmm. struggled in the uh, Adelaide event, and um, I, yeah, knowing the Dow, he wouldn't have gone there and, and have been embarrassed in in round one. That's just not what Nadal is. Not his style. That's not his style. Yeah, he's not going into a into a grand slam saying, "Hey, this is a practice slam, and if I lose in the second or third round, that's okay." Like every time. You know, no. every time he goes into a tournament, he's he's going in there and he's willing to put his body completely on the line to win it. So, you know, I get your point. 
you know, that, you know, what were the realistic expectations considering his mentality of going in your first tournament back, essentially, other than that one warm up and playing, you know, a grand slam. Um, on the other hand, you know, the injury that he did sustain while minor was right in the same kind of area where, you know, he got injured last Australian Open that took him out for a year. So I could see being extra careful, not knowing for sure if it, I know they did have a MRI or a scan and it showed us a different injury, but still naturally you'd be extra concerned when the injury is in the same area. Um, but you know, I think this happens a lot and I'm not saying for Nadal in this specific case, but I think there's a lot of players that, you know, when they're looking at retirement or not, they kind of have to also look at like, okay, what is required by them, you know, with regards to their sponsors. And even if you look at Nick Kyrgios, you know what I mean? If he were to announce his retirement today, um, would his Nike contract still pay him whatever it pays him on an annual basis? Naomi Osaka, the same thing. Once you announce your retirement, I'm sure some of these contracts that you have either go, either go, you know, they ex there's, they're nullified or there's a reduced amount that you get paid out. So some of these players, I feel like they're hanging on, they're claiming that they're still going to make a comeback or they're still playing professionally when the reality is, you know, they might play a couple tournaments a year. There might be, you know, be hurt, you know, but they still are quote unquote, an active player. Do you think that's going on a lot? Do you think that's the case for Rafa? I don't. I think he truly wants to, you know, have, have a shot of winning Roland Garros, maybe the Olympics as well. But when it comes to other players, for sure, I think that happens. Curios, for example, you know, you see with the, his kind of podcast, he's now a commentator. He's almost full-time, you know, a media guy now. Um, I don't realistically, you know, see him coming back as like an active touring player. What's your take on players that are not announcing their retirements, but they're basically in retirement? Is it about, is it all about the money? It's, it's a good question and it's a difficult one. I don't, I don't think, I think you know, for Nadal, it, I, I would say it's not about the money, but then, you know, we're, we're going to touch upon what you mentioned before with, with him becoming the ambassador of, of Saudi Arabia, because I do think that was for the money. And I think, you know, there's always a saying that the, everything has a price. Uh, and it's been reported that, that Nadal has been paid 750 million i've read uh, in a couple of articles to be the ambassador 750 million dollars of saudi arabia so you know there's certain things that you're not going to say no to and I, I think um that you know hey, hey, with, pavi, can, pavi can i just stop you that where did you hear that number sure. because i was speculating i had no idea and i i speculated on a previous pod i said it's got to be over 100 million because nadal you know doesn't need the money <laughs> And for him to, you know, he's got such a clean reputation. You know what I mean? To him even to risk staining that reputation, yeah. it, ha it would have to be a massive sum to, for, for it to move the needle for him. Maybe 750 yeah. is true. It does seem like a lot to me, but like, where did you, where did you get that number from? So I heard that from someone who works in tennis that, that messaged me and said that that was what they heard from the Nadal camp, that it was seven. It, several several hundred millions. I think it, it was yeah. Someone mentioned seven fifty, but it was definitely more than a hundred million. I think the there was an article in the UK that said that it was more than a hundred million. Um, so you know we're talking serious money here. Um, yeah. And like you said, Nadal has risked his reputation because 
Um, you know, some people have said that he's been part of the, the, the money washing that, that Saudi Arabia have done and, and because of their human rights records that he shouldn't have then become an ambassador uh, when they still have um, certain human rights issues in, in that country. So I don't think Nadal um, being squeaky clean and being kind of who, who I call, you know, the, the king of, uh, of someone who's sanctimonious and morally superior. But um, so it was a big risk for him. Um, but, you know, for, to answer your question now, I think that was done for, for money. Now, with regards to the other question, whether, you know, whether do Nike and other contractors keep their contracts while they're still playing? It's a good question. I, th I think with Nick, mm. um, I think he's trying to make as much money as he can. And he, he's probably one of a guy who wants to retire at 30 or 40 and then sit in yep. Bahamas where he lives with a you know, few beers and, and you know, sure. running around partying. So I think there's different motivations there. I think Naomi Osaka was well documented as the highest earning female athlete in the entire world last year. So I don't think money is going to be maybe, um, an issue for her. Maybe it's more relevance with her than money. Same as Nadal. Money, I would say, you know, Kyrgios falls in the cap where money still matters. You know what I mean? He's obviously, he's probably yeah. worth 25 million bucks. Like I'm not saying he's poor by any means, but when you throw another $25 million on there, you know, that doubles your net worth. Whereas if you throw 25 million on for Nadal or Naomi, it doesn't really it doesn't really change your lifestyle at all yeah no 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 i I totally agree with that totally agree with that yeah. but i think there is an element of that and i do think there are certain players that will um will do what they 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 they're, they're not being sincere when they're on the camera and that's the, the the bit that i um kind of don't like is i think there's a lot of players that are disingenuous and, and they will only say and do what they think they're Sponsors will say and do, and this is why I'm so always very thankful that that uh, Djokovic has been with um, Lacoste, who you know who stood by him during the most difficult period in Australia, and they've always encouraged him to to speak his mind. And I don't think they would ever put any restrictions on him um, in saying or doing what he's done. And and you know we had that. I was involved in that Twitter. Um, chat with the CEO of the Lacoste who said that they he would never have Nadal as uh, someone that they would sponsor. Uh, and mm. that was in re relation to Nike saying that they would initially said that they, uh, Mike, um, I forgot his surname number one, the direct senior directors at Nike said that Djokovic wasn't really their kind of guy, uh, even though they'd offered him uh, three contracts uh, and he declined them all. <laughs> um, so Lacoste then said, um, well, you know, Nadal wouldn't be our kind of guy. So, you know, they, they, they've got his back and, and they allow him to speak freely, which I think sponsors should do because you then get a genuine person and, and not someone who's saying and doing things um, that they don't believe in, but they think, well, yeah, actually, this will look good for me and, and this will make my sponsors happy. And that's what, that's the bit that really irks me. So I just don't like that in, in players. And I think we can see the ones that are genuine and the ones that aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's interesting. And when it comes to even, you know, Nadal, you know, being the ambassador of Saudi personally, I didn't, I don't mind it. I don't really care to be perfect. I know I, I was surprised because I know how much his reputation means to him and it will bother a few people, you know what I mean? But for me personally, it didn't matter. If Djokovic yeah, were to go, yeah, if Djokovic were to go and form some sort of partnership with Saudi, there's obviously talk about this super series 
Now there is the Six King Slams, which is an exhibition that will be held, I think, in October, which, you know, involves Rafa, involves Novak, it involves Medvedev, it involves Alcaraz, Rune as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's no, it wouldn't just be Rafa, it'd be, you know, Djokovic is obviously already in conversations with them, but if he were to form some sort of larger partnership, you know, to form like a super series, et cetera. How would you feel about that? Would would you be okay with that? Would you think that would stain his legacy a little bit? Do you morally, would you disagree with him kind of going down that path? Since at the end of the day, you know, he doesn't need any more money, you know, but do you yeah. think on the other hand, it's actually, it's a win-win for everybody. It makes the game more international. You know, it brings kind of the West into Saudi Arabia to help with, you know, some would argue just justifiably, you know, the rights uh, for women, et cetera, how they treat their people. Is this a good, would it be a good thing? Net benefit yeah, if Djokovic I joins mean, or not? I, I personally, like yourself, I don't, first of all, I don't have an issue with, with Nadal becoming an ambassador. I find it funny because he's kind of positioned as this person who's yeah. very morally right. And with Djokovic, he's positioned as this, as this kind of bad guy in hyphenated commas who's not morally right. And he's, um, yeah, you know, it, it, the people it, would expect him to like, you know, partner yeah. with the access of evil kind of thing. Yeah, you know of course, what I mean? Of course. So it, yeah. it wouldn't be that much of a, an issue because we've never, you know, we, uh, first of all, we've never said Djokovic is perfect. You know, as, as a Djokovic mm -hmm. fan, we know that he's got issues and he's not perfect. And that's one of the reasons that I like him is that I've never said that he's this guy who's, you know, a, a choir boy or, you know, has done never, not, not anything wrong. I like the fact that he smashes rackets personally. I like the fact yeah. that he shouts and squares and screams at, um, at his box and and gives it back to the fans. I love that. Um, so you yeah. know, I personally wouldn't have any problem. And and you know, being from the UK and seeing where you know where we're going and, and the US and and they're the last people to speak to to give people moral um, high ground after half the stuff that they've done. So you know, um, every country has its problems. You know, and. Um, it's not always the fault of the citizens. So I think what Novak has always said is that he wants to be someone that um, takes tennis around the world. And you know that's what Tony Godsick said with with the Labour Cup. That he's ended up going to all the rich places in the, in the world to um, to make more money. But but you know there is areas of tennis that genuinely don't see a lot of tennis. The Middle East is one of those, and and Saudi you know, up until very recently, hadn't seen uh, any top quality um, elite tennis be played there. And, you know, there's many parts of Asia that haven't, there's many parts of Africa that haven't. Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely a case for Novak to be an ambassador. He's obviously owner and uh, board member of the PTPA. So it's uh, for his interest, for his players' interest. You know, if we go to Saudi, it could mean more sponsorships. It could mean attracting more players from the Middle East and growing the game and, and part of the PTPA is, is to ensure that there is um, more and more money and more sponsorship so you know I think he has a duty to um, go to as many countries as possible and, and not get involved in the politics side of it just stick to the fact that he's there um, you know purely for tennis purposes um, you know he's not pushing a uh, any um, routines or anything he, he just wants to get more people more kids more women more men whoever it is into um, uh -huh. into playing tennis so I, I personally don't have a, a massive issue with Nadal I just find the hypocrisy quite quite amusing um, right. and if, if Djokovic wants to do an alliance with Saudi Arabia or with any other Middle Eastern 
country, I I, I wouldn't have um, a problem with that at all. I don't think it would stain his um, his legacy as such because you know this is what we've been told that you know he hasn't got any morals and he doesn't care about anything and he's right. greedy and all that stuff. So you know it's it's Nadal's the one who had the reputation for the risks. So um, right. yeah, um, but you know, but having said that, Djokovic will only do it for the right reasons. It, you know, I, I know for yeah. a fact he wouldn't do something just for the money it has to be for the right reasons and he has to trust uh, the people i know that from the, the people that he has in his team he, he has to trust them explicitly for him to agree to any any deal and and what that what that would entail right with regards to the super series or, or the super i don't even know what people are calling the premium ser- series of <laughs> super series but you mentioned the ceo of tennis australia craig tiley i know that he's been really pushing this um, it's, you know, putting together the, the 1000 ATP tournaments and the four slams together and creating like almost like an entity in itself, separate from like the 500 and the two fifties, at least that's my understanding. But to do that, would they need to buy, would, they would need to partner with all the different owners of the slams and these respective tournaments. Do they, or, or is it where they, where they actually form a partnership with Saudi, the government, and use the money in the so- in their sovereign wealth fund to buy a lot of the thousand tournaments. Is Saudi part of this super series? Like, are they part of the equation? Do they need their type of money to execute on that, or is it or is it completely separate? It's a, it's a good question, and it's still very new at the moment. There's obviously Saudi have just suddenly burst onto the scene. I think it was boxing that they initially. Um, kind of went mainstream with with some very high profile boxing fights. That was a huge success, and I, and I think Saudi are looking over at their partners, at their neighbours in Dubai, and have seen how much millions that they have made through sporting and musical um, kind of concerts, and and they want a bit of that. And you know, they want to bring top quality sport. Uh, I know the prince has said that a number of times that he wants to bring top quality sports to the kingdom, which is why money isn't an issue. I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of the most affluent countries, primarily due to the, the, the resources that it finds with its oil in, in the entire world. So money isn't an issue, but to attract um, the level of um, interest and, and kind of hype that it gets, it has to pay mm-hmm. the top players to come and, and promote it. And that's why they've given Nadal an open checkbook and they've said, you know, we'll write whatever you want. If you can be an ambassador, it means that more people are likely to want to have tournaments here. Uh, And then, you know, two months later, there's a big tournament, which is going to be the highest prize fund ever. So if you look at Grand Slam winners, obviously men and women are paid the same. But if you look at Mm -hmm. all of the slams, in the most recent years, the winner of a slam will get approximately $3 million dollars. Um, now, this the winner of this event for just six players is going to get seven and a half million pounds. So that's more than oh, double. Oh, the, the, exhibi- the exhibition, the, the, the six exhibition. king slams. The, the oh, six interesting. Slam. Yeah, so they're going to get seven and a half million dollars. That's more than double um, uh, the money that you would get in a slam. And if you think of all the sponsors that the slams have and all the money and the fans that they bring mm. in through the doors, that is... That's quite significant. And that, not only that, and you, you're probably aware of this, but every player that takes part gets one and a half million dollars just for turning up. So, you know, we're talking serious money here. And, um, right. you know, it's 
Um, I think ultimately what Saudi will want is they will want their own Masters event. Um, they will want the high quality event. Um, and that's probably why they've got Craig Tiley in, in, involved um, because they will probably want to, uh, along the line in a few years, they may even be applying to get Grand Slams, um, you know, Australian Open maybe, and, and or, you know, or do a, a brand new event, which is, um, like you said, an amalgamation of the Masters and the Slams, but it's held in Saudi, best of the best maybe, I don't know, but they'll right. certainly be pushing for World Tour Finals. They'll be pushing for... Um, various events. We've already had Tony Godsick said that he's um, considering uh, Saudi Arabia as a, as a Labour Cup um, venue as well. So that, you know, it's it's going to happen, you know, whether Nadal is not the ambassador or not. I think Saudi have got a taste for that now. They've shown that they can put on a good show. You know, I'm a big boxing yeah. fan and, and they put on a really, really good show in the boxing, the, the you know, the, the marketing, the uh, the whole atmosphere, they, they do it really, really well. Um, so they've showed that they've got the ability to to, to run major sporting events and um, you yeah. know, they accommodate with the time. So, you know, they're, they're happy to change their time to make sure it's prime time in the in the US and, and UK. So, so yeah, I, I think it's got to be a good thing for tennis. I, it's going to be hard for Labor Cup to compete, you know, when they're pay, paying players $250,000, you know, just to show up. And then the Six King Slams is paying, you know, players 1.5 million to show up. Now, I know that they're more exclusive to just the top six in the world, you know, whereas Labor Cup, particularly last Labor Cup, they were bringing guys in that were in the top 60 or 70 in the world. They weren't able yeah. to attract the best players. But now that it's back in Europe, I think they've got a better roster. So that's one thing. I think uh, you mentioned that they're, that they're gunning for a 1,000 level tournament, but I thought I heard an announcement or maybe it's just rumors right now that there actually is going to be a 1000 tournament before the Australian Open in early January or at the end of December, um, end of December this year, early January next year, um, that's been announced where the total prize money is 100 million, um, which would which would exceed the prize money for any other 1000 tournament. I don't know if that's a rumor rumor. Or if that's already in the calendar, um, sounds like you're not sure based on the fact that you said that they were gunning for it, or or is this a for sure thing? Yeah, so so I read the article and, and the buzz. I, I think they were planning to do a, a Masters in 2025. Um, oh, okay. Just before the okay. Australian that would Open, make sense, yeah. which, which is next year. Which um, is next year, I yeah. I, I don't think that that has been um, authorized by the ATP as of yet. I think Craig Tiley is involved in that and Saudi obviously are involved in that and Rafa will now obviously be very much involved in that being an ambassador and being the, the go-between. Um, I do think um, Federer is going to be involved in that as well. So a day or two after um, Nadal was announced as the ambassador of Saudi, um, Federer and his agent Tony Godzik then go and visit Nadal and his agent in, in Spain all of a sudden and um, you know, then, you know, Tony Godsick's talking about Saudi Arabia. So I think they're all um, part of this. And I think if the Federer and Nadal are part of it, then the ATP are going to be probably part of it as well. So yeah. um, I, I don't think it has been, to my knowledge, it hasn't been confirmed yet. I think it's rumours. Right. Uh, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if it is. Um, mm -hmm. 
but um, but yeah, it would have to go into the diary pretty soon if it's going right. to be January twenty five, um, which obviously we're in twenty. Uh, we're in 24 now i know i get mixed up too (laughs) ask me of my ages and i would have no idea (laughs) um you know so yeah it's 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 interesting because um you know i'm a purist and uh and i understand and therefore like for me as like a a golf fan as well live from just my enjoyability as a fan it's kind of taken away a little bit because you know, the normal PGA tournaments, it's not the best of the best playing for the title anymore, other than, you know, the majors. Uh, tennis, you know, if Saudi comes in with almost, it feels like, you know, their unlimited amount of money, just a blank check that could like buy basically anything, it will start to do the same thing and kind of tear. I don't like to word the, like to use, a, use a, the phrase tear the sport apart, but there'll be kind of this like, this like splitting between them right so like who's playing in the atp tournaments being first being played in this new saudi tournament i get it from a player's perspective because it's been widely you know discussed that players you know on the atp the vast majority of players don't make that much money you know we've been talking about the rafas the Djokovic's, the sinners of the world that are extremely well paid but you know for everybody else outside of the top 40 top top 50 they're kind of just hanging on. And when you're outside top 150, you're not even hanging on. You're just relying on sponsorship dollars or grants essentially to help you kind of like pay your way. So I can totally understand why there's this opening for Saudi to come in and say, hey, you know what I mean? We can really create something here because the players will jump if we give them an opportunity to earn three, four, five times what they're earning currently in the ATP. One thing that um, I heard some rumors is that Saudi is in negotiations to buy the Pepperstone ranking system for the ATP. I don't know if you've heard about this. I'm assuming it's a strategic move to have leverage over the ATP whenever they negotiate with them. Um, but owning that to me, if you it's just numbers, right? You would think, but I'm sure there, there's something more to that around the entire ranking system. If you own that, you probably do have a lot of control. Are you familiar with that? It was a, the first time that you mentioned it was the first time that I've actually heard it, but uh, it okay. makes total sense. It makes total sense for me because if you want to be um, part of tennis, which they've you know expressed that they do and they want to um, attract the tennis then you know being a key sponsor of something like the the, the rankings and pepperstone obviously um or, or, or the, the rankings at the moment it's going to give them visibility and profile and and that's what they want but what i do think is just taking it i think it's slightly different from golf um i think golf was there was a separate league set up and there was a big goal breakup i think if they do with this properly the atp yeah. should be talking with saudi to say look you can have the big tournaments on the proviso, you do 10 ATP challenges a year or, or 10 ITF challenges a year, and you pay these um, other players proper money as well, you know, top 100. And in that way, then you're going to then, all of tennis then are going to be really, really happy because a lot of the people at the moment in the challenges, so outside of 200s, they pay challenges, they pay ITF tournaments, they pay futures tournaments. A lot of these tournaments are in, in the Middle East already. So they're in yeah. Turkey and they're in... Um, uh, other places that um that 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 you know hold these but they don't pay a lot of money 
So the ATP, if I was the ATP negotiator, I'll say, look, I can give you the Masters, but in return, you have to give us 10, 20 challenges a year and then pay these properly, you know, pay these you know, the, the, the lower rank players properly. Mm. And I don't think Saudi would have an issue with that. They'll be like, well, fine. You know, if you want us to do smaller tournaments to attract smaller players. So, you know, they could use this to an advantage. So this is why I think Djokovic as well is also mindful of this being part of the ptpa and looking at Interesting. part of his role is, is is looking at other countries that can support players so you know that is the discussion that nadal should be having as well as the ambassador to say yeah you know it's all good for the top players but what are you doing for women's tennis you know are you doing what are you doing for the lower ranked tennis you know we can't just you can't just you know want tennis and then just target the top 10 20 players in the men's game you know, if you want tennis, then you have to have the whole package. And that's the, the negotiations that I think would be taking place at the moment, which which should be taking place. You know, I don't know if they are, but, mm-hmm. that, if, you know, if they come from a good place, then that's the discussions that should be happening. And if that does happen, then I think it will be embraced by the whole of tennis because then you're, you've got a, a new income stream, you've got a new tennis venue, you've got a new location, new challenges that come along with that. And it's exciting. It's exciting for fans. Um, you know, fans will be able to attend. I know. Uh, I know a couple of my friends were had, had booked tickets to go and see the Fury um, uh, fight, which is unfortunately cancelled. But you'll get fans travelling to Saudi as well. It's a new place, and they recently. I don't know if you saw in the news. They recently announced that they're not going to be a dry country um, um, going forward. So I think this is all Fine. part and parcel of the fact that they're gonna. Yeah. They they want to attract sports it, fans from all over the world. It never and, was. And it never. It. it never was a dry comp, a dry country for the elite. There's always there's always drinking at private <laughs> yeah. parties, etc. But I love that they make that announcement. Um, yeah. One last thing. I know we're we're running over an hour now. We want to keep this to an hour. I have one more question for you, Pavi. Sure, sure. And that's regarding. It kind of ties into Saudi, but it also, um, you know, ties into also just the commercial value of women's tennis. There's the moral issue now, if Saudi gets involved and it's both an ATP and a WTA, the WTA have have taken stronger moral stands than the ATP in the past. Understandably so in a way, you know, especially when it comes to Saudi, but because now they've, they've kind of like, you know, planted a position of where they, where they're at from a, from a moral standard, it's going to be more difficult for them to justify working with the Saudis so that's one that's one question slash issue I have. The other the other one is the actual amalgamation or partnership of the ATP and WTA, WTA. And I know there's some there's been a lot of talk about this, but I've also heard that the commercial value of the ATP is probably four or five times that of the WTA. Obviously, when it comes to prize money in the slams, they're equal. Um, and you know, there's you could have a we could have easily another hour discussion around that uh, if that makes sense or not. You know, you even on Twitter, I know that there's been some um, of your followers suggesting that women's uh, Grand Slam matches should be best of five, or at least if it's if it's two all in sets, they play a like a super tie break up to 10 points. So they don't have to play a full full fifth set to justify earning as much as as the men uh, in those slams. I know I put a lot out there. Um, let's start with just the partnership. Is the ATP and the WTA going to come together under one entity and form a partnership? And how would that look from a commercial value standpoint? Um, it's a good question. I, I think first and foremost, I think both of them are really poorly, poorly run organizations. So there's no, mm. 
um, secret in that the ATP and WTA are, are not run well um, and they haven't been for a number of years. Having said that, I do believe the ATP has actually run better than the WTA, who, who under Steve Simon, who was um, who's made a number of errors and is now kind of upstairs and, and no longer the CEO. But um, the WTA isn't run well, and we all know that they're not making a huge amount of money. And there was even talks that they would go bankrupt in a, a recently, um, which um, um, Steve Simon said that wasn't the case. But they're, they're clearly struggling um, with yeah. their finances and, and keeping everything going. So they. That is the reason why I don't think the ATP and WTA would ever combine. Um, now, hey, Pabby, is it because it's poor? Is it because it's poorly run, or has a or has a poor product that people don't want to watch? I know people. It's a, it, I know it's that, a that that's about... a controversial topic, but you know, mm. I mean, nobody seems to seems to say, hey, you know, when women's tournaments, when it's purely women's tournaments, the the turnout, you know, f- is a couple thousand people in the stands, you know, versus yeah. the men's matches. You're not allowed to talk about that. Is it a combination of poorly run and it's a bad product or, or where would you kind of like, where, where does that skew? It's, it's probably more the, the second in terms of the product. So the ATP have got certain sponsors and certain um, commercial relationships that um, are there purely for the ATP. And, and, you know, whether we like it or not, we want to be politically correct. More people watch ATP tennis than WTA tennis. And, and that's just the fact, the fact of the world. Now, Outside of um, the slams, the ATP w- uh, will work with their sponsors and we'll see how much TV revenue they get, how much sponsorship they get, and then they will set their own price pop. WTA yeah. are then in negotiations with sponsors, organizers, TV people. They will set their own price pop. So it's done on economical terms as opposed to everyone should be paid equally. And that's always been the case for me. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female or a trans or whatever you want to describe yourself as. It depends on commercial value of, of what you bring. And, and that's why there was, you know, there was some discussion saying that, yeah, well, women should do best of five. I, I think they should. I think everyone should be equal. You know, women mm. and men are, are equal in my, in my eyes. Uh, you know, they're athletes. Women could easily do best of five in, in my um, understanding. Well, I, I, dis- I, I disagree with I disagree. I have to disagree with that. I I think I've said it before. It'd be carnage. I don't think if you have best of five for women, yes, some of these women, you know, they, they train hard, et cetera, but you know, some of these matches could last four and a half, five hours. I don't fine. think fine, but I don't think that the, I think they'll every second match will be, will be a retirement. There'll be injuries I, everywhere. I don't think that they can withstand it. I'm not, I'm I, not I, trying I, to sound I, sexist, but I'm just saying that no. just the, yeah, I, I, you, you I don't disagree. Where you're coming from, but I disagree yeah. because I know I know a lot of women tennis players are super super fit. Like Wozniacki used to run yeah. uh, marathon yeah, yeah. comfortably. True. I think a lot of the top players, you know, they okay. work just as hard as in the gym and and as just as the men do. We're talking an extra hour or two hours. We're not talking, you know, huge amounts of um, extra work. And I think a lot of these players for five, six, seven hours anyway. Even if they don't go that way, they're they're physically um, getting ready now to be in shape to you know go however long the distance. So, so but I mean it comes back to commercial value though because if you're on, there was a tweet um, that went viral that was taken off by uh, another podcast company which basically said um, along the lines was that Sabalenka earned more money in the Australian Open um, 
or the, more than double than than Medvedev for being the runner-up, even though Medvedev was on the court for kind of double the time. And mm. you know that's the bit where you think okay, that's got a point, and people will scream and shout and think. But if it's it's you know you, you take it away from tennis. If someone's in a let's go back to a factory, you know it could be a man in a field. If someone's working double your hours doing the same thing, but they're working double, and you're getting paid the same as them or more than them. That person who's working double isn't going to be happy. And, and it doesn't matter if you're a male or female. That comes to commercial values because the longer you're on court, the more sponsorship that, that the sponsors are going to get, the more TV sure. viewings are going to get. So everything is generating a value, an economic value. It doesn't, you know, let's take out men and women out of it. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be done on, on court time. It's got to be done on who brings the sponsors. Um, and that's why the ATP, that's why I think the ATP and WTA can't combine because all the Masters events, all the 250s and 500s, it's up to them. They can earn what they want. There's no limit. We don't, they don't say to the women, you can only earn this much. The, the WTA can negotiate whatever amount they want for, the, for their, it's up to them. And that depends on the relationships that they've got with their sponsors, with the TV rights to see how much money they can. There's no cap. So it's all to do with negotiation and they can only negotiate because you can't say to TV people, we want 5 million. If they're like saying, well, we're only making 3 million. How can we give you um, less than what we're making? So it, it all comes yeah. down to the fact that there, there's a number of stakeholders that are going to be generating money and the prize money is going to be a reflection of that. And ultimately you're going to get paid what you're worth. Um, and that's why the ATP and WTA can't combine because they're two completely different products. Yeah, I agree with that. But there's also this predicament in the slams too. Well, I, I under, completely understand your point about playing best of five if you're going to earn the same amount. But we're talking about commercial value and we know that people tune in for the men's matches more. It takes up more court time. Will that ultimately affect the bottom line of the slams as far as people actually coming to attend where the women's matches are taking up more time on court? Will it, will it affect the commercial value as far as viewership? You know, watching the matches you know if there's more women's matches on you know than men's matches or at least equal because typically they'll get a little bit more men's tennis because the matches run longer will that affect commercial value so there's a number of different things to consider there um which is probably why they're just that neither of the organizations know what to do what to do about it but point well taken um you know if you're going to earn the same you know you should be generating the same amount of uh revenue for the yeah. uh you know, for the businesses. So, uh, makes sense. Okay. Pavi, I think, um, we've, uh, ran course here. We've talked for over an hour. I promised you, <laughs> I'd only keep you for an hour. I know you have other plans tonight. Um, thank you so much. Um, you're a smart guy. I don't even consider you controversial. You you're willing to touch controversial topics with some common sense. Um, you're a very eloquent speaker. Appreciate you coming on again, Pavi. Uh, highly recommend following you on Twitter. Just want to provide how um, listeners can follow you, contact you, etc. Yeah, no, th thanks for those kind words. And and yeah, I, I mean, I don't personally see myself as a controversial figure, but I will always say it as it is. And I think the society now, you kind of get to a stage where sometimes you can't go. Uh, against the flow of society and if you do you're then targeted as being toxic or a, you know as a troublemaker 
Um, but that shouldn't be how life is. And, and you know, I, I, I totally respect people have other views, but we're losing the art of debate. And, and there seems to be one side or another. And, and what I try and do is, is try and promote debate, healthy debate, where people listen to each other like they did back in the day <laughs> and, and and you know not everything is always black and white so um so thanks for those kind words yeah i mean mainly um you know i'm on twitter a lot with with a lot of my views whether it be tennis or politics and and you know i'm not saying that i'm always right with my views but what i will always say is that i say them as i believe them and, and i'll say them um you know, a, lot, a lot of the time with some with some humor as well i think people don't get the the fact that i say things with uh, a bit of humour just to make it a little bit interesting, but there's some serious uh, topics on there as well. And, and yeah, Pavy G, so it's um, P-A-V-Y-G. There, there's actually a few imposter accounts now, so uh, I'll take <laughs> that as a, as a compliment. There's a, there's a, there's a various uh, troll accounts, so just be careful. Uh, it's the one with the blue tick. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, happy to, happy to talk to everyone. And, and, you know, ultimately I respect all the players um you know it, it gets it, it, you know it's it's interesting i mean tennis is a great sport and and you know everyone gets very very passionate about it which is um, which is good and and you know ultimately i think um you know the the, the twitters and social media yeah. even though um tennis will say well we don't like all these you know accounts you know it's about views everything is about um views and demands at the end of the day and and you know if it gets people talking it, it means they're watching more tennis as well which is um which is good for everyone um you know players fans you know that's what we do we love the sport and um um long may it keep uh keep going and, and polarizing opinions and dividing opinions but yeah let's keep going well said pavi thank you so much for coming on